Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Deer Gear Podcast. I'm your host, Cameron Durr, and this is episode number two. Today I have Chad Sylvester of Exodus Trail Cameras on the show to talk about his upcoming whitetail rutcation. So Chad's going to spend two weeks in the great state of Kansas chasing after some prairie land open country whitetails. We talk about everything that he's taking with him and how he's going to hunt out there. We also cover a little bit of what he hunts with when he's around home. So if you're curious to know what Chad's taking with him, maybe you have an upcoming rutcation planned yourself out of state and you want to pick up some things maybe you should be taking with you. Make sure you tune into the entire episode. And for now, let's get right into it. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Deer Gear Podcast. Things are feeling a little bit different here. I'm not used to being on this side of the hosting because today I have Chad Sylvester next to me on the podcast. Chad is obviously the owner of Exodus Trail Cameras and my boss. So <laughs> we have um, we have a lot to kind of cover today. It's going to be a fun episode. I want to go through kind of your history of how you became the way that you are today with what you're taking with you and how you're hunting. Mm -hmm. And then you have a big trip planned for November, the infamous rutcation headed out to Kansas. So I want to cover your expectations on that hunt and like what you're taking with you and how you're going to hunt it. So yeah, sure. Let's kind of dive into how uh, you've been hunting for a real long time. The transition from like how you started and how you got to where you are now. Well, I think, you know, how I got started was, uh, you know, hunting basically permanent uh, modified or permanent built stands. And they were things, you know, these things were basically, I guess, less glorified shooting towers that we would build out of mm-hmm. things we had laying around the farm. So a lot of the shooting towers and stands that we had were like almost like box blinds. But they were built out of um, actually pallet racking. Oh, wow. So we would concrete these things in, put a roof over top, and build these little shanties. Um, and there were probably five or six of those around the farm. And a lot of it was like, you know, my grandfather was trying to keep us busy when we were, you know, doing stuff, working through our 20s or teenage years at the farm. And it was like his way of teaching us like a little bit of uh, ingenuity, like how to be resourceful. Sure. But also make it fun because we... Love deer hunting. Yeah, yeah. So um, did that for a little bit. We also had like some wooden platform stands that were like six, eight feet off the ground because everybody's paranoid about heights and none of us wore safety harnesses growing up. <laughs> the so, old, good old days. <laughs> yeah, the good old days. And it was shotgun hunting, right? Sure. Um, wasn't a lot of bow hunting going on then until my later years, but that's really how we got started. And I can remember someone coming over the farm and my grandfather talking very highly of this individual. He was a business owner, successful guy. And when he came over to hunt, he was like, he was one of the guys that always had his deer tag filled in multiple States before November. So I remember him coming over, me meeting him for the first time. And, you know, we're talking about where he was going to go hunt. And then after that second, I guess it was the the second day I, I was introduced to him and we were talking about where he was hunting, I guess. And he's describing, you know, the edge of the swamp and, you know, using terminology at that point in time, like I had no idea, but I was like, 
well, there's no tree stand there. Like, what are you doing? Hunting off the ground? He's like, no, I carry a tree stand in. I was like, what? <laughs> like, I know you're not taking like hammer and nails and a saw and stuff and building <laughs> something back there because that's all I knew. Yeah, right. So um, that was the first eye-opening experience that, we're, that, that there was something else out there other than permanent stands. Like whether he was using, you know, a hang-on or a climber, whatever the case was, he was at that point in time mobile, which was probably the late 90s. Mm, okay. So like 97, 98, somewhere, 96 maybe, 99, somewhere in the later part of the 90s. So that was my first eye-opening experience of, okay, I don't have to hunt out of these stands that are already here on these field edges or permanently built in the edge of this clear cut. Like I can go wherever I want. Right. I just need the right tools. Yep. So that transitioned me into a climber. Okay. An old summer uh, summit viper, like with the shooting rail, super comfortable. Heavy as hell. <laughs> yeah, heavy, <laughs> loud, you know, aluminum tubing. Yep. The thing echoed um, something terrible. The bottom would kick out. I did a lot of stupid things trying to unhook the base and climb over branches <laughs> and just being very reckless and dumb because I didn't know any better. Or if I knew better, I didn't care. Yeah. Um, which then led me to hang on stands because instead of hunting for trees, I could, you know, basically get set up wherever I wanted. And then that eventually led me to saddle hunting. And then I guess a step further into, um, better saddles and better hang on stands, lighter, lighter weight stuff, more, uh, functionable sticks that climbed a lot better than what I was using, um, you know, through my mid twenties, I'll say. Sure. So let's kind of break down what you're currently using now, and then we'll kind of talk about what you're going to use in Kansas. Cause that's going to be kind of completely different. Yeah, sure. So what, um, what's your current like go-to system you're headed in for a hunt here in Ohio, uh-huh. whether it's you're going down South or you're hunting around home. What's like your what's your go to setup? Well, something that's um a, a, that I'm gonna say is a staple that doesn't change within my system is the, my climbing sticks. I'm I've been running those Beast Gears 24 inch sticks, the double steps, uh, for I think this is the third season yeah. that I've been using those. And then they're you know modified with rope, did away with the buckles, went to a a rope mod, and that to me those sticks you know they're not perfect in the way that they pack. They're a little bit bigger profile. But the climbability for me outweighs everything else because yeah. I could put them on any tree with a rope mod. The standoff brackets are phenomenal. They're the best standoffs, I think, personally, in the game. They stay tight to the tree. I don't have to worry about any slippage. I can get them on angles, crooked trees. They climb really easy. They attach and break down really easy. So that part of my system is a staple. never the, changes. The point that you made about hunting for a tree with mm-hmm. a climber, you can get sticks on the market today where you're still hunting for a right tree. That, that is correct. So I, I too am running the B sticks this year and I was more of a packability guy over climbability last year. And I got my hands on some B sticks as well this year. And I agree. That's, that's the best climbing stick I've found that I've used so far. So yeah, yeah I'm, I'm with you there. Yep. Um, and when it comes to whether I'm using a hang on or a saddle, I kind of flip flop back and forth. I do kind of both. I tend to, use a saddle more because it's more versatile, I think. Um, so in my saddle setup, I'm running the um, Latitude Outdoors Method 2, two-panel saddle with the EDP platform. Now, this is my first year using a dedicated saddle platform that I own. Like yep. last year, I used your mission on and off. Um, prior to that, I was just using a small platform that would attach to the top of the sticks. The artisan fabricating. There you go. Yep. Yeah. Um, which... 
for a two or three hour hunt, evening setup, morning setup, it's not terrible. Um, but you limit yourself in a lot of different ways as far as putting side pressure on the top of your stick, being able to use the tree as a blocker, wrap around, and be able to shoot 360 without having a true weak side shot. Um, I think you limit yourself when you're using that type of platform. Um, and then just, I found myself fidgeting more. The longer I sat there, the more I would fidget on, a, on, that, smaller, on that smaller platform. Yeah, you end up, like you said, you limit yourself, and you end up using a saddle more stationary than it should be, or you force yourself to bring more things like a ring of steps or something to get right. around the tree. And then at that point you might as well just take a platform. Yeah. So I'm excited to hear about your, um, at the end of your season on your experience with the EDP, I'm using the same platform and I use the mission and I love them both. I think, uh, I think you're selling yourself short. If you're not using some type of platform as a saddle hunter, a standalone platform Yeah. is way better than the platforms that go on your sticks. I would so totally agree. Yeah, we run extremely similar setups with the saddles. I'm also running the Latitude uh, two-panel saddle. We have the same rope setup, the same, mm-hmm. everything's the same, basically. Yeah. The uh, the pack is what makes our system possible, mm-hmm. I would say, with the way that the sticks pack in. And now the way you are packing the EDP, I am doing that now as well, and it, yep. it works. Yep. So um, very similar styles. But what I want to talk about more here is what you're taking to Kansas with you on your rutcation. You're going to be out there for, you have slated, what, two weeks? Yeah, there's a two-week window that, you know, ideally we would go to more than just Kansas. I think that there's a possibility of hitting two states maybe. Um, but the tan- Kansas tag is the priority priority to fill. Yeah, yeah so we're, we're talking, um, I'm not going to give locations here, but we're talking prairie country, yeah. uh, river bottoms. And the the hunting system is going to be a lot different. What you're taking with you is going to be a lot different. Yeah. But I, I want to focus on also what you're taking with you outside of just hunting. Because everyone in November is going to be taking their rutcation. You just spent um, three weeks or two weeks in Idaho and a week in Wisconsin. Yep. So you kind of have a bunch of experiences here with traveling to hunt mm-hmm. and what you should take with you and maybe stuff that you took with you that you don't actually need that could save some guys. A little bit of a yeah, hassle. Yeah. So yeah, absolutely. You know, my train of thought is, and you've hunted with me a lot over the last couple of years. Um, I take a lot of stuff with me that I don't always need, but I want to have it because a lot of times I hunt more away from home, like five plus hours away from home, than I do around the house. Yep. And a lot of the locations I'm in are remote spots where I just can't run to a hardware store or a sporting goods store and pick something up if I don't have it. Like, that's really not an option. So I either bring it or I have to go without. Yeah. We're talking an eight-foot truck bed, the biggest truck that you can buy without needing a CDL. <laughs> and this thing is Basically. full, yeah. packed to the brim. So, okay, what are you, what are you going to be taking with you to hunt? Um, let's, let's say, and what's your, what, actually, let's back up. What are your initial expectations on how you're going to have to hunt out there? Well, my initial expectations um, have kind of gravitated towards what I want out of the experience of hunting, kind of open terrain. And that is really like spot and stock, um, maybe being really aggressive. Uh, and Well, I guess patient behind the glass and aggressive when I need to. Um, but then also looking at really successful guys that, who do some things out of the box with like decoying and calling. Um, so I want to gravitate towards that. But the last couple of weeks in my mind, I don't want to 
box myself in sure. and say, I'm only going to hunt spot and stock. And like, I'm, I'm just going to glass all day, every day until I find something and then go in and, you know, stock something while it's bedded. Or I'm only going to use a decoy and rattle. Like, I don't want to box myself into that, um, having a certain type of experience because at the end of the day, the goal is to fill a tag. Sure. And if that's better accomplished by using a tree stand, I will use a tree stand. I will have a tree stand with me. If that's better accomplished in a saddle, I'll have a saddle with me. If I need to use a decoy, the opportunity presents itself, I will have a decoy present with me. Um, so my, you know, expectation of going to Western Kansas is to just fill a tag on a 130-inch deer. Okay. I'm not after a giant. I know there's giants there. Um, you know, I've really struggled the last five, you know, going on six years. Like, so I just, I want to, I want to go back to where I was like in my late twenties, killing deer and having fun. Having fun. Yeah. I think, I think you hit the nail on the head with like the experience that you want to have and going into a, um, an out of state hunt with a goal in mind of having a certain experience and picking that state based on the experience that you want to have. I had the same thought process going to North Dakota. I wanted to spot and stalk a deer. Yeah. I wanted to glass them up and spot and stalk them. Wasn't possible. I got out there and it wasn't possible. I ended up killing a deer out of a saddle. Right. But one of the big things that you're going to find yourself needing out there is glass. Yes. So what's uh, what's the glass that you're using for this trip? So my glass setup um, was kind of piggyback off of my Western hunt. So I will have a Maven spotter with me. Um, trying to think of the specific model. I know it's 15 to 40 power. The S1. The S1. Okay. So it's um, an angled spotter which I have also am running a Vanguard um, a Vanguard tripod, and then I also have a window attachment to be able to glass from the truck. Mm-hmm. If the weather's crappy, uh, whatever the case is, if I can cover ground in a vehicle and then use my glass from a vehicle, that is, to me is a lot more efficient than picking you know, a high point, setting up there for three or four hours in the morning. Yeah. Just sitting in one spot. And we kind of learned that in the Wisconsin hunt too, with like covering ground oh, from the absolutely. truck was like way more efficient. Absolutely. You, and out there, you're going to be able to see deer all over the place yep. in the time of year that you're going. So covering ground in the truck is going to be mm-hmm. um, crucial. But the that specific spotting scope is awesome. I have it too. And that thing is, I we're thinking retails for what, 650 yeah, dollar for dollar, like it's a it's a steal. It's the yeah, it's the best spotting scope under a thousand dollars that you can buy. It's more comparable to like an a thousand dollar glass. The yeah. the I think the Maven Direct to Consumer model is probably what allows them to be able to do that and have such quality glass at that yeah. price point. That is their budget spotter. It's um forty ounces. I think it. It's not super heavy. Mm-hmm. It's not huge. It's a little bit smaller profile. It packs terrible. Because it's angled, yeah. Yeah, it yeah. packs terribly. That's something I learned in Idaho, yeah. There's not like a super great way to pack it, but with um, the thought process in mind that you're going to be using it mostly from the truck, that's not a big deal. Not a factor. And um, one thing that you're going to be doing, I know from talking to you, is glassing from long distance. Mm-hmm. So setting up outside your truck with a um, tripod is probably what you're going to be doing from the road. Mm-hmm. So the, the packability in this scenario is not that big of a deal, but if you're in the market for like a super packable spotter, this isn't it. But if you're in the market for a solid, very solid spotter for under a thousand dollars, check out the Maven S1. It's it's a beast. Um, moving through your glass, what uh, binos are you going to be taking? Um, again, those Maven B3s. So that's um, a small bino. Very yeah, they're eight by thirties. Yeah. Um, 
very, you know, I bought those to hunt whitetails in the timber. Um, you know, a lot of big wood stuff that I do. I didn't want a, a giant, you know, 10, 12, 15 power set of binos. Because when you get into that type of magnification, it's really hard to stay steady when you're freehanding glass. It is. Um, so I wanted something that, number one, was light. Number two, that was small. And typically when I'm in the big woods and hunting timber, hunting whitetails in timber, I really don't need to stretch beyond maybe 100, 150 yards. Um, and that's where, you know, that gap between the 8-power um, binos and, like, that 15-power, the 40-power spotting scope, I think is um, it's pretty applicable in a, a couple of different use cases, which I think I'm basically covered there. Um, one of the things I like about Maven is that, you know, the consumer direct business model, but they're really good in low light. Oh, for what you're what you're spending yeah the glass is quality yeah um that that maven the b line isn't there that's not their um their pro model is it i think that's like the tweener um or is they the, have the b1s the b2s and the b3s yeah uh the b3s are their cheaper or of I, the don't, I don't want to say cheaper cheaper is not the right the right term but they're the least expensive um b model of the b model yeah so the C model is more like the the consumer model. Right. Um, right. Those B threes I'm looking at them right now retail for five twenty five. Yeah. So not cheap glass, but good glass is going to be so important in those open open country scenarios. And the fact that these things are tiny, and yeah, yeah. they're super small. If you're crawling on the ground through some CRP, they're not going to get in your way. So yeah, um, that's one thing I, I want to like emphasize here is glass in open country is something that you have to consider in my North Dakota hunt. I sat on a hay bale with that spotter and I spotted that buck that I ended up killing. If I had just my binos, I would have been like, what is that? Now I did have a cell camera there. I was glassing that area. So I got a look at him from the cell camera, but just through my binos, I couldn't make out what he was. I just knew there was a deer there. So having good glass is going to be crucial. Now I want to get into the decoy. <laughs> Okay. This is okay. this is going to be something that is extremely different than anything that you and I are familiar with. Yeah. We don't hunt in areas where one deer respond to decoys very well to. We don't hunt in areas where you can get decoys into. And um, the calling aspect just doesn't really, it's not something we use a lot. So I right. want to get into, one, the thought process around, around having that decoy and then what kind of decoy you're taking out there. <laughs> so... Um, kind of break down uh, why you think a decoy is going to be something that you're going to be using. Well, you know, it, most of it, or basically all of it, stems from the success that the guys at Whitetail Adrenaline have had with decoys. In Kansas. In Kansas, in prairie-type open open country. We'll yep. just call it open country. Um, Chansey and Jared both um, have used them. Great success. And it looks like a lot of fun. It's <laughs> active hunting. You're basically carrying this decoy like a shield in some scenarios you carry it in like a shield like it's kind of a spot stock you see a deer maybe you don't have the terrain or maybe you don't have the cover to 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 put a a solid game plan together to stock it so you can use this decoy as your cover as your cover and um now what happens after that deer comes in within bow range gets kind of sketchy but um it's something i just want to try and and experience it looks like it's a lot of fun and talking to those guys I don't know that there is a bigger adrenaline rush um, whitetail hunting than doing that on the ground and having a having a buck ready to 
rip your head off at 10 yards. Yeah, Jared said that's the closest you'll come to being put in the hospital by a whitetail in your life. Yeah. And if you don't shoot at the right time, you could get yourself in a bad scenario. Oh, absolutely. Now, some of the strategy behind, I don't want to go too deep into the strategy behind using the decoy. I just want to kind of cover the gear aspect of it. But um, when you're stalking those deer and you get within that bubble and you throw that decoy up, you can have an amazing experience. Yeah, and I think that there's, you know, there's that scenario where you're using that as, a, you know, carrying it like a shield and, and doing like a modified stock. But then there's also like blind calling setups yeah. as well, like where you're on the edge of some thick and maybe it's in the middle of the day and you smash antlers together and you have that decoy set up 15 or 20 yards um, from you and, you know. You no give that deer a visual. Exactly. Yep. You give that deer a visual of the noise that you're making. Um that uh, that decoy that you're taking out there with you, mm-hmm. uh, also um, whitetail adrenaline esque. Yeah. Yeah. So this thing, we have a deer. Oh, we have a video coming to our YouTube channel that we need to plug here a little bit. But you got to check this thing out. So kind of pretty sweet. Yeah. Kind of break down how you built it. Um, well, it was driven from uh, again whitetail adrenaline, and the idea stemmed from from you. I mean, it was your idea to build a couple of these things. So, uh, you know, it's not, um, it's a 2D slash 3D decoy. It's not entirely 2D. So it's not just like a printed film. Um, like the Montana a, decoys. Yeah, it's, it's not like, it's not set up like, like that. Um, so what we did was we took an old mount and basically cut the head like towards the base of the ears, like just so you have like the snout, the eyeballs. And I left the rack on on the on the mount that I use. So that's the physical head part of the decoy. And then we took um some plastic sheeting basically and cut it into it's not the side profile shape of a deer, but if a deer were were to like quartering two and semi turned where its kind of midsection was contorted and compressed, um that's the way we cut the shape of that plastic out. So you can see the tail. Yeah, so you see the basically the hindquarters and a chest is basically what we were shooting for. Yep. Um, so we cut that out of a sheet of plastic, and then we used spray foam to get some depth to it. Uh, took some spray foam, sprayed it on that plastic sheeting, and that gave us, I'm going to say, anywhere from two to four inches of depth. And then we took an old hide, an actual deer hide, and kind of pieced it together where we have a real tail, we have, um, you know, we have a throat patch, we have real looking legs that go down to the bottom of this decoy. Um, and then on the back side of that, we have, you know, a slight, I guess, plywood frame built out of like three-inch plywood strips. Just to support the weight. Just to support the weight of the head. And it's a little heavier than what I thought it was going to be. I didn't consider how heavy the hide was. It is pretty. Um, but I'm going to say it's probably 12 pounds. Yeah, it's, that's fair. Um, and then there's a couple stakes we have to put on where you can, you know, stake this thing in the ground, uh, like in that blind calling setup where you could stake it out and then not have to sit there and hold it. Um, but that's the basic, I guess, concept. And that might be hard for some people to grasp, but if if they check out the, the video, they'll see how we put it together and what this thing looks like. It's going to be badass. It, you know, when you first look at it, it's like, what in the hell are we building? <laughs> but then, like, you step back and, like, just use your imagination a little bit. Like, you're in some CRP or in a little bit of a brush or on the edge of a thicket. And this thing looks freaking real. It is oh, not yeah. something I would carry around in gun season. I can no. promise you that. Yeah, you'll get shot. You will get shot. Yeah, it's 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 badass. Um, I'm gonna do a little bit. I'm gonna do mine a little bit different with the the weight in the head. I'm just gonna cut the antler shape out of that plastic sheeting, 
and I'm just going to use like the eyes and nose forward for to add that real life nose head look. But when you're using a decoy, it's the shape. It's it's just kind of like a turkey. They get locked onto that shape. That's why you can just use a fan and reap a turkey. The same. It's the same scenario with this 2D type decoy that we're taking that you're taking out to Kansas with you. It's the shape that is really going to matter. And once that deer locks onto it, you can do anything you want. Essentially, you can have like if you have a cameraman or something, you can have him sitting out in the wide open. If he's locked onto that deer, it's it's game on. So. The decoy, the decoy aspect, it's pretty cool. If you guys want to check that video out, make sure you're subscribed to the Exodus Trail Camera YouTube channel. I think that's dropping uh, on Friday, the same day this podcast goes live. So check that out after you, after you listen to this. Um, now let's kind of go through um, something I know you struggled with this year and in seasons past is like your bow setup, mm-hmm. and I want to I want to touch on that while while I have you here kind of the the arrow and all the whole struggle that you you went through so you switched bows this year uh what are you shooting now i'm shooting a prime nexus 2 so in the previous years probably for the last five years i've been shooting a halon halon 6 um two different ones yeah two different ones one got stolen i like that platform so much i just went ahead and bought another one after the the original bow was stolen um had a lot of confidence I guess in the bow, it was fast. It shot well. I liked the way it handled. But it seemed like as the season went on, there were string issues or timing issues. or A lot of it was in the setup, I guess, the way the bow was initially, I guess, kind of set up. I never had confidence that everything was right. So then I was always left wondering, is it me or is it, is it my equipment? Is it me is it, or is it the equipment? Is it the arrows? Is it the bow? It was is a serious it battle. It's every other week. It like was- every other week, I'm like, trying to figure out what the heck was going on i would shoot great and then i would shoot terrible i would shoot great i would shoot terrible um and i never really found out if it was me if it was the bow i just basically gave up on it yeah it was it was something it was like hard to watch honestly because the confidence in your equipment is such a high thing and yeah um if you get into a scenario and you're not confident in your equipment then you're gonna that's a recipe for disaster and it cost me, like, that's something I talked about in on Trail Cam Radio was being more aggressive with shot opportunities this year because in the years past, it's like, well, that deer's not perfectly broadside. I'm not going to take, I don't want to take that shot. Like, probably should have. Yeah. Yeah. There there was a scenario that we were hunting together on where there should have been a hole through a deer. And yeah. It just, yeah, the confidence kept you from taking that opportunity. So what, uh, what's the, what's the whole bow and arrow setup look like this year? Um, so the prime Nexus two, um, 80 pound, 80 pound bow. And I will say, um, you know, I wanted to shoot an 80 pound bow because I'm shooting heavy arrows and I wanted speed. Drawing the bow is no problem. Like drawing 80 pounds for me, um, is not really an issue. Now I had to play with the let off a little bit because <laughs> it was aggressive. The, the way that prime holds, like they're known for it, like solid back wall and holding next to zero weight. But with an 80-pound bow, like, when you had to let that thing down, it was like a, a NASA rocket getting ready to take off. Like, it was sketchy. Oh, yeah. Super sketchy. So I had to play with the let off a little bit. Finally got that dialed into, it's not perfect, but it's, I think it's the best it's going to be with that. With those limbs. Yeah, with, with an 80-pound with an bow. Um, shooting a Hamsky uh, Pro Trinity rest. Really like the rest. Um, I'm not 
100% certain I will shoot it again next year, though. Hmm. Because Why? In conjunction with the way that that bow lets down, being that aggressive with that heavy of a draw, the Hamsky's not... It's like... Um, I don't know what the proper term here is. I should know the proper term. We're on a gear podcast, but it's like a like a whale tail. Mm-hmm. It's limb driven, yeah. so it does not stay up one hundred percent of the time. Mm. It only stays up when you're at full draw. Yeah, when you let the bow down, it drops mm. down. So I had to add some stealth stripping around, um, you know, um, on my on my riser and on my shelf a little where bit. That, where that hits, where my arrow when I would let my bow down, my arrow would make a little bit of noise there. So yeah, um, had to add some stealth stripping there to make up for that, which Next year, I probably will go back to some type of HHA, I think, you know, where I could flip it up and it's, it's locked there for good. Um, but I do like the Hamski. It's a really, really solid rest. It shoots. It's accurate. It shoots yeah. awesome. Yeah. Um, the entire setup shoots really awesome. On the sight side, I've played around a little bit. Um, I wanted to shoot a spot hog, multi-pin, vertical, adjustable sight um, on back order for six weeks. I threw a Trophy Ridge uh, vertical five pin on there um did not like that mm, i don't like did not that. like it at all so i end up going back to an hha single pin which one are you shooting um the tetra yeah whatever the newest tetra is single yeah pin. that's a nice sight it's uh yeah super nice it's smaller than like the kingpin mm-hmm. and um it has the wheel adjustability yep. you can switch the wheel for different setups yep that's a really nice rest um, um what are the what are the arrow what's the arrow setup look like this year? Uh I've been battling arrows to be honest. Oh yes you have. I've been battling arrows because of that eighty pound eighty pound limbs and I have a thirty and a half inch draw. So I'm super long draw, super heavyweight. Um looking back at my limb choice, I would probably not get an eighty pound bow again. It I'd makes things stay. difficult. Well it's just you're limited on what you can use on the arrow setup. Um, on your broadhead setup, and then tuning becomes an issue. Yep. Um, so I've really battled arrows. I've, you know, I bought uh, day six arrows, two seventy fives and and two fifties. Two fifties are the stiffest, heaviest arrow that they make. And I am, I was, underspined for the broadheads that I wanted to shoot yep. for how much weight I wanted up front. Yep. So I had to back my point weight off. So I'm only shooting a hundred grain broadheads. Um, my FOC is somewhere between 11 and 12%. So I'm on the lower yeah. spectrum of, I guess, ideal, uh, total arrow weights around 575. Yeah. No lighted knocks. Nope. White, white knocks with, um, fire knock veins. The arrow vein two is what I have set up. And even at 575, I'm, um, again, underspined. Um, I wanted to shoot 125s or 150s for a point weight. Couldn't do it. Wouldn't fly right. The arrows, no, they wouldn't. And I did, I want to say five or six weeks, but bear shaft tuning, knock tuning, point tuning. Like I went Try down everything. that wormhole. Oh, yeah. And none of it worked. It was all tail right. Everything was tailing right. Yeah. That and was I was a... to the point where, like, I had everything adjusted. I was out of adjustability on every, everything on my bow. Yep. Um, and I finally had to take it to a tech and said, I, I don't know what's going on here. Like, f- help, please <laughs> help me. Um, and they got me straightened out. I had to put a, uh, a small shim on top of my cam. Um, I also adjusted my roller guard, which Denny Sharon is just like, just back your roller guard off. Take the tension off the cable. It'll bring, swing this camera around. I'm like, dude, that's, you're over my head. Now. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I got my bow straightened out. I did have to go down to um, 100, 100 grain point weight in my arrow flight straightened out. 
Yeah, we were to the point where I was like, dude, just put fletchings on it and shoot the thing. Because yeah. it was like, what do you do? Yeah. And um, that was another, it was with the confidence. You were like, but I don't, like, <laughs> I don't, I want it to be right. I want it to be. Yeah, because of my past experience, like, I don't want to think about, like, is it my bow? Is it my air? Like, what, is it me? Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't want that scenario. If now I, it's just you. If I want, if something screws up, I want to know that it's me. Yep. It is me 100%. I screwed up. Yep. Yeah, you can't blame any else. can't blame anything else. Uh what what the what broadhead are you shooting out of that? Um I'm shooting the Afflictor EXT. So, so the, fixed fixed blade broadheads. Um last year I shot the K2 fixed. Awesome awesome broadhead. Um I w- was going to shoot those again this year. There were some inventory stock issues and I was pressed pressed on time for that Idaho trip. Yep. So I went ahead and uh started shooting those EXTs. They fly really really well. They're a little bit louder. Then there's K2 fix. There's a hiss to them. Which is weird because the, the K2 fixed is like a four blade. Mm-hmm. And then the EXT is a two blade with like really small bleeders. Yep. You would think the four blade would be heavy. They're a smaller profile. Yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it is a little bit weird, but I guess, I don't know, something to do with the, the pitch of the blades, I guess. And it's, the way yeah. That they, they, it's spinning. the angle probably yeah, too. They're a little bit steeper. Yep. So those broadheads have performed pretty pretty well for me afflictors line has i shoot the k2 fixed and i'm shooting 125 green head uh byron horton is shooting those exts and he said that he held a better group with the ext than the k2 i sent him both of them and he he was like oh yeah dude, these are awesome so yeah those are that's a super solid setup i can't wait for you to shoot something with it oh it's like even last year out of a 70 out of that halon six with the um I can't remember if I was shooting 100 grand or 125s last 125s. year. 125s. Um, you know, there was a scenario where I made a bad shot and I had to put a follow, follow-up shot on a, on a doe late last year. And, like, not point blank, but 15-yard shot probably through both, like, through both shoulders. Oh, dude, those things are – your whole setup, 80 pounds, 30 and a half yeah, there's draw. No, like, I mean, golly. I can't wait. I can't wait to see the carnage that creates. Um, let's jump in a little bit to – what you plan on wearing, what you're taking with you, and what your clothing gear system looks like. I have, uh, you know, kind of a mixed bag of apparel. I have stuff from Sitka. I have stuff from Kuyu. I have stuff from First Lake. Um, all of those companies make great gear. I think certain companies make certain pieces better than others. Um, I'm really high on the first light merinos and their and their layer their oh. layering system their base layers yep um on the merino side i think that they're probably the best and i the, have pieces from kuyu and sitka in the hunting space yeah that yep. they're the best i've tried i haven't tried like any of the icebreaker or the companies that are making mm-hmm. merino not necessarily yeah, for hunting and, yeah i haven't tried any of that but in the hunting space i would say uh first lights merino straight merino base layers are the bomb Sitka has some nice synthetics, mm-hmm. but um, I haven't tried the Kuyu stuff. I need to try some, but the uh, then you, you had some problems with like the waistband. I had problems with the elastic waistbands, yeah, on um, on the pants. Yeah, uh, the uh, the top garments I've had no issues with, but the pants I've had I've had some issues with the pants. So um, what's this is a mid November to it's basically a mid November hunt. Yeah, what's um, what's kind of your layering system that you're going to be employing? Probably. Um, so merino all the way around for my base layers, probably something lighter, unless the weather really calls for something heavy. So probably somewhere around a hundred, hundred and twenty-five gram um, merino wool base layer. 
um, if I need any type of insulation, I have synthetic insulation, the Kenai pieces from Kuyu. Like those to me are top notch. Mm. I don't know that they get, uh, like an insulation piece gets any better, better than, uh, than what those are. And those are zip off bottoms. And, um, uh, basically it's a, they're, they're puffies, right? Like, but they're synthetic, really soft, not noisy. That's important with a puffy. So the noise. Yeah. A hundred percent. And then on the outer, um, it'll probably be Kuyu pants, probably the pro pant. They have like those built in knee pads. There's vents there. Um, they're a little more durable pant. So brush lining, a little more durable through walking through like briars and CRP. They're not going to get picked and, you know, uh, cut up to death, I guess. And then on the top, the top just depends on what's going on. I mean, I have um, uh, the, the guide series jacket from Kuyu, which is really nice, but it has a hood. I don't like hoods. Yeah. Um, I have the, I'm trying to think what the other jacket is. I can't think of the Teton jacket, which was, they, they don't even make anymore. That's really nice. I have also, um, if it's not super cold, like I'm going to say like in the fifties, I'll just wear, um, a catalyst vest yep. from first light. Yep. That's a really nice piece. So it just depends on what's going on with the weather, but I have enough clothing and apparel, um, technical hunting garments to cover really a broad spectrum of really any type of weather condition. Yeah. It could get crazy out there. It could go if from it's a snowstorm and it's blizzard and it's, you know, 20 degrees and then I'll throw on the fanatic stuff if I'm in a tree. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's important to note. Like you're staying light because of the way that you anticipate moving around correct. and stalking a deer or sitting in your truck. So right. you're not going to need to be, but those pants I think are going to be that that's something that I want to talk about is the pants with built in knee pads. I have a couple pairs and for spotting and stalking or for saddle hunting, they're the bomb. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to try those pants that you have. Cause I think those knee pads, offer a little bit more padding than what I have with the Sitka pants. Mm-hmm. And it, they're like actually built in to the outer portion of the pant, yes, right? Are. Yeah. So that's like attached, not removable. Non-removable, yeah. The pants that I'm running, I have the Sitka Apex pants. And they have like those removable football knee pads yeah, and they're right. real thin and they're kind of big mm-hmm. and they shift around. Mm-hmm. Having the knee pads really nice, but I think the those Kuyu pants that you have, that knee pad is going to offer the perfect amount of padding, the just right amount of padding, and that doesn't get in your way. You don't even know it's there. Right. Yeah, it's not something really overbearing. There's just enough there. If you're crawling on your hands and knees, you're not going to get jabbed with briars. You're not going to get a sharp pinch from a rock or, or something of that nature. You can, If you're a, a, a knee guy in a saddle, there's enough there just to prevent your knees from digging into the bark. Feeling the bark, yeah. Yeah. That's, that's all so you there's, like you said, there's just enough. Yeah. Um, real quick, I want to talk about the camo patterns. Uh, what you're planning on using out there, whether you're a camo guy or a solid guy. So what what's the uh, what's the strategy for out in um, prairie ground? I think anything that's really light, like light color palette and things that are open, mm-hmm. I think will work. Um, I don't necessarily think it needs to be a camo pattern or solace because I have both and I have confidence in both. Um, I just think that the color palette needs to fit that specific scenario, which is a lot of, I guess, light, light browns, I would say. Yeah. Prairie Um, grass. Yeah. There's a lot of different CRPs, dead corn stalks, dead Milo, um, uh, a lot of native grasses. So anything of that nature that fits that color palette, I'm fine. What about, uh, so you're going to be spotting and stalking. Uh, why aren't you using a ghillie suit? Uh, That's a good question. I have not really a ghillie suit, but I have like the leafy jacket from first light. 
Um, I did use your ghillie suit last year. I took it with me to Missouri. And, like, there were a couple of times where I would wear that in. I think that's probably a mistake yeah, is wearing wear it, it in. Yeah. But it just got tangled and collected so many small sticks and uh, briars and brush. Like, I was a walking bush <laughs> after a couple hours. I mean, literally, like, I could set yeah. up an open field and look like a bush because there was so much crap just attached to me. That's still in there. And it's a little bit heavy. Yeah. Um, it doesn't breathe well. It, I, that's the other thing. I got I got hot when I was wearing it. I got really hot. And one thing that I wanted to touch on with that is when we sat down with Jared and recorded that White Tail Cribs episode, I asked them why they don't wear ghillie suits anymore because that's something I picked up on previously. Like the first time, first seasons, they were wearing ghillie suits, mm-hmm. and now they don't. If you watch The Hunting Public, they were all ghillie suit. Now they don't wear it. And what Jared said was he looked back at the footage, and when he was in that light prairie grass ground, mm-hmm. the ghillie suit that he was wearing, he looked like a black bear. He said, I just looked dark, and I looked when he looked at the footage, you just looked like a black bear. Blob. Yeah, yeah just like a big Kinda black. Round. Yep, just a big black blob because yeah. the color profile wasn't right. So he doesn't wear a ghillie suit anymore. He just prefers solids to blend in with the color, and that's something I think I made a mistake on. I was like, I got to have a ghillie suit. And if you're not in the right terrain to match that ghillie suit or you're not in shadows you can really make a big mistake i I would got i would get picked off wearing that thing and i think like man like i'm wearing a ghillie suit like how do they see me and i look at my surroundings and i'm like i don't look like any of this stuff so right. you just look like a round blob right and he, like the way he put it was he's was like i just looked like a black bear yeah i mean that's a probably that's a really important thing i don't have a bunch of experience in, in prairie ground but thinking that you're in open country there's not a whole lot of opportunities to tuck into those those shadows i mean there's opportunities where you're gonna have front cover and back cover yep but typically you're gonna be out in the open sun like the sun's gonna be hitting you so it's important not to have i guess any metals or anything reflective um really on any of your gear yep and dark like you're not gonna wear a mossy oak pattern out there right you're gonna look like a black bear so yeah is there anything else on uh anything else you're taking on this trip with you that we missed or anything you want to want to add um you know not really on the the hunting setup side. Uh, I think when people take like these recreation trips, it's always, there's guys that want to bring things that like for comfort, like they want to have like a release or something. Coffee in the morning. Yeah. Coffee <laughs> in the morning. Like, and I'm not, I'm not super big on that stuff. Um, I've had that question pop up on some other uh, podcasts, like one podcast I did with, with uh, Byron Horton. I, you know, when I'm driving hunting Ohio five hours from home or whatever, I sleep in the back of the truck. Yep. Um, and he's like, well, what else do you bring to be comfortable? And I was like, I'm not worried about being comfortable. I'm just <laughs> there to hunt. Yeah. So I, ha- I have a little bit of that hardo mentality. But on this trip, um, I will have coffee in the morning because I'm with Clint. He's a like oh, yeah. coffee connoisseur you know, yeah. with, with Skull Brew. So we, we will always have coffee in the morning. Um, we'll always have a jet boil to make some type of hot meal, which I didn't do that previously. I was like just bars, cold stuff. But being in Idaho and doing some of that backcountry stuff, it was nice to dump some hot water and have, even though it's, you know, dehydrated, freeze, yeah, yeah freeze dried meals don't always taste the best, but it was good just to have something in your stomach that was hot. Yeah, especially in November, it's gonna be cold out. So I think, um, you know, those two things offer a little bit of comfort. Um, of course, that my that uh, the GeoPress water filter, oh I'm yeah, like super high on that. Chad will like, drink piss out of this thing. I will drink anything out of that. Like <laughs> that um that's something that never leaves my truck or leaves my pack. Um 
if I'm going on an all-day excursion on an evening hunt or something, my partner with me. But uh, I think those three things are new to me for 2021 that I think will um, increase the level of comfort, comfort, or increase the the enjoyable the enjoyableness. Is that a word? I don't think so. No. So it'll make the trip more enjoyable. That's good. I mean, that's why. We, I mean, that's why we do it. It's supposed yeah. to be fun. When you start like sleeping on rocks and like depleting yourself of coffee in the morning, if you drink coffee every morning and you're like, I'm not drinking it, I'm out hunting. Like this is supposed to be fun. So yeah, I think I'm looking forward to hearing back from your experience out there. I know it's going to be a really fun hunt. You and Clint are going to have a blast. I hope you guys get it done early and then we can go somewhere else and I can come out there. <laughs> so that's the plan. Yeah. So hopefully, uh, hopefully you guys have a good trip. Guys, if you have any questions for Chad, where can they find you? Uh, you can find me on Instagram. I'm not sure what my handle is. Uh, what is my handle? Sylvester underscore Chad. There you go. Sylvester underscore Chad on Instagram. Um, not very active on Facebook, so Instagram's the best. All right. So if you guys uh, enjoyed this podcast, please take the five seconds and give me a five-star rating. Uh, if you want to see any visuals, like I said, please make sure you're subscribed to the Exodus YouTube channel. We're dropping a video every day for the next two months. So thanks for tuning in this week to the Deer Gear Podcast and have a good Friday.